When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Tara Bigsby, and she has a podcast that comes out every Tuesday called Courageously You. And Tara is a young therapist. She started working in the prison system and then sort of young people in crises. And something was really bothering her about the practices, which were We're labeling people, okay, you have anxiety, you have depression, you have ADHD, but we're not really always giving people the tools either to get over a trauma or to manage life's challenges. We're throwing medication and meds at them. And so I'd say that she's ballsy. She's on a mission to encourage our system to do a better job at supporting these people that go through so many challenges. And yes, there are people out there that medication is maybe the only way, but she's saying it's a lot less than the amount of people getting medication and it's about giving them more care and more tools. I give her a lot of credit. It is not easy to go against the establishment. And here is a young lady who is following her own beliefs. She's in there. She's seeing it and she's saying, hey, we can do better. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation. First of all, where did you get the courage to launch Courageously You? Was it for you? So it's really funny because in 2018, I had just graduated with my master's degree. I had gotten married. In my master's program, I was a stressed out basket case, like poor self-care, total burnout, quit a job, just a mess. And so it was the fall of 2018 and my husband was duck hunting and it was early morning on a Saturday and I was reading Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. And there was just something in her book, like I can't even say it was a sentence, but I think it was just the idea that people struggle, but they're not talking about it. And that's how I felt in grad school. I felt like I was struggling. I would put it out on social media. I'd feel ashamed and I would take it down. And so something in that book just ignited something in me. And I was like, I need to create something where people don't feel like they're struggling alone in silence. So it's kind of partly something I did for myself because I was tired of struggling alone, but it was also something that I don't know. I I honestly don't have an answer. It was just this feeling in my soul that I had to do more. And so that's where the courageously you comes from is because Brene talks so much about courage and I didn't want it just to be like courageously and then you. And I think at the time I wanted to do courses, online courses. So I was like, oh, you like university courageously you. So that's kind of where it came from in a nutshell. But I think there's a lot of people out there who want to start something. And I think the hardest thing is starting and taking that first step. So, you know, did you create a strategy? Did you sort of do some homework before you started? Like, how did you prepare for launching? I get asked this a lot and I wish I had a cool answer, but I kind of just go like by the seat of my pants when it comes to things. And I originally started with courage with a splash of coffee and I deleted it because my self-talk told me like, that's dumb. Why are you doing this? Like, nobody's going to care. And so I deleted it. And then that's when I came up with Courageously You later because I just could not silence that inner voice that was like, you need to be doing this. And so somehow, I don't even know how um, Jenna Kutcher's podcast came into my life, but it did. And she talks a lot about like courses and email lists and things like that. And so I started listening to like business podcasts that would teach me the business end because I knew nothing about that. And so that's kind of what started that. And then 
she has a thing called the podcast lab. And I used to listen to podcasts and I'm a therapist and I talk to myself all the time. And one of the things I love doing is when I'm stressed is I'll process out loud while I'm driving. I'll just kind of talk myself through it. And I'm like, I really want to do a podcast. If I can talk to myself in a car, I can definitely talk to a mic to people that are listening. And so I took her podcast lab and that's what's launched it. And you made the comment earlier about like, why should anybody listen to me? And I have reached out to some big people and I always get this thing of like, oh, you have to have so many followers, you know, like what's your audience size and stuff like that. And I think people with massive platforms may be delivering wrong information. We're like, I'm this little fish in a big sea and I have a loud voice. And so it's kind of one of those things where I just was like, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I'm jumping all in. So I just kind of threw myself out there. I'm really curious. I really want to drill down on something today. And I want you to help me with this because yeah. I'm going to take advantage of that. You are a young woman. And before I move in, into this, you met your husband when you were very young, but you weren't married until you were later. Yeah. So we met when we were in sixth grade, we went to private school together and nothing, there was nothing going on there. We went to separate high schools. And then when we were 21, we reconnected like the whole bar scene in your 21. So we reconnected there. There was no like romance, just friends. And then I moved to California for a boy. Wouldn't recommend doing that. And he went, got married, had kids. And so when I broke up with my ex, I was moving back to Idaho. I found him on Facebook, just how like they suggest your friends to you. And I reached out to him and ironically, he was going through a divorce at the same time. And it's like, you know, misery loves company. So we hung out and it just kind of grew from there. But I was, I was 27, I think when we started dating, so I felt older, but I was still in my twenties and step parenthood is totally different and it's, it's a curveball. but I've kind of grown and thank goodness I was in grad school. So I was going to school for counseling. So a ton of my research is on step parenting because I was trying to help myself through the process. If you're coming into someone's life, for example, let's say you're the female and they have teenage daughters, that is a very different dynamic than even a teenage son or a little younger kid. It's crazy because I think it helped that I was raised in a blended family. So my parents split when I was six months old. So all I've known is blended families. And that narrative was something I knew. It was definitely different being the adult in the blended family where his parents are still together. He has three sisters. They're a very nuclear family. And so I think if anything that's helped is me having that insight because I can kind of help him a little bit. But what's crazy is how much it did bring up within myself of my own insecurities, my attachment issues with my dad, things like that, that really surprised me. So I've had to really work through that. But I think what has worked is that he supported me. There's been times where I've struggled through those moments and he's been like, Kay, like, talk to me about it. Like, how can we get through that? Where I think a lot of blended families, sometimes the bio parent isn't open to that communication. They get very defensive and they respond poorly and things like that. So I think having him understand, like, it was a hard journey for me. And as a family, it was going to be rocky. I think just having his support was honestly the best thing that could have worked for us. If somebody was feeling certain things in the way that we live today, how do we teach our young people coming up who are always on their device, which we know already scientifically creates a ton of anxiety for a, a number of reasons, whether it's too much dopamine and you can't release serotonin. I'm sure you're well aware of the only thing that blocks your ability to produce serotonin is too much dopamine, right? So you can't get to feel good, peace, relax hormones because you're banging on your dopamine all the time. So how do we decipher what is truly anxiety and depression for real? Or I'm having a bad day, I'm having a bad week, or this circumstance I'm in right now is highly stressful. So I think what's happening is we live in a society that is so anxious. We have symbolic threats coming at us all the time, which is basically just things that we are worried about or we're anticipating. And then Elizabeth Stanley wrote in Wide in the Window, she talks about the analogy of us having a window of tolerance. And I like to compare it to like a glass. Imagine we all have different glasses, or you can even say Starbucks sizes. We all have different Starbucks sizes that we can hold when it comes to stress. And what's happening is I'll use kiddos, for example, because that's what we're talking about is Every time a kid is stressed out and they don't have the ability to recover that sympathetic activation that happened within them, that stress response that happened within them, it's like a little bit of water gets poured into their cup. 
And then another stressful situation comes along and they go through that same process. More water gets poured into that cup. And eventually it's going to fill up if they're not ever recovering from it. And it's going to overflow. And that's where you start to have that mind-body system dysregulation, where you start to have the presentation of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever symptoms that you're going through. Well, with kids, I mean, kids aren't taught how to self-regulate. Kids aren't taught how to recover or process when they are triggered by anxiety. And unfortunately, they are just bombarded with things that trigger their anxiety now or trigger that stress arousal for them. And so essentially... I think kiddos are highly anxious and I'm a therapist where I approach it is I don't believe in the mental health model. I don't believe that chemical or mental illness is a chemical imbalance. I believe that we become dysregulated and that is where symptoms present. And so for kids or they're being treated as if they have a chemical imbalance, they're saying, oh, you have an anxiety disorder or you're anxious. And then they walk around and they're like, oh, I have anxiety. No, you don't have anxiety. You live with anxiety. And so I think we are telling kids, we're giving them these labels and depression too, is there's so much research on the role that your gut health plays in depression or how you're sleep deprived or not moving, or maybe you're grieving the loss of somebody, but we're telling people, oh, you're depressed. Oh, you have a a major depression, stuff like that. And then they're holding on to these labels and identifying as it. We have so much more information and in a way we've gotten further from the sources. So whether it be your microbiome, whether it be the dirt on the vegetables that used to take care of our guts and not eating processed foods and not being on electronics, we live in a modern world. We're all trying to understand it and put all this framework around it. And some of it is just the fact that we are living away from and against our source. Because like, for example, let's say if I was a kid and, you know, like everybody, I have my own things that were challenging. Just the fact that I didn't grow up with a phone, that's the thing for me sometimes where I think it gets sticky because now everything has to be so deliberate because we're always plugged in. Yeah. So if we say, hey, sweetie, you're going to have to like get off your phone so you can have some downtime. (laughs) I think you're crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes I look at it and I just go, or when they say things like, well, I'm uncomfortable when you talk like that, it's okay. Well, are we that precious? As the adults, as we're trying to help young people and teenagers and young adults navigate, you know, what are some of the best ways to approach this? Because I think a lot of us are trying to learn and not be too harsh, but then at a certain point, nature and life, it's hard. We got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gives their kids mental health medications, but there are a lot of people when they see their kids struggling, they instantly want to medicate them. If I could say anything is do what you need to do for your kid. If you feel that it's life-threatening, obviously do what you need to do. But I have worked in a prison. I've worked in an acute mental health unit inside a prison. I currently work with kiddos in an inpatient psych hospital. And I cannot tell you how many times I have seen them start to present anxious or have a panic attack. And it's immediately meds injected into you, take this pill, take a PRN, and it makes my blood boil because all you are doing is reinforcing the problem. You are not teaching that kid how to cope with the symptoms. Why is that alarm going off? Why are they being triggered? Why are they being ignited? And so I think for people who have kiddos, it's knowing like the medication essentially is going to be a band-aid. It's not addressing the fire, like what's causing this fire? Cause that's what you need to extinguish. So I'd say start there first. Medications aren't your first line of defense. And you have to think with kids too, is kids are so stressed out. Like I cannot even imagine being a kid in today's life because they have crazy hours at school. Then you think sports maybe, or the pressures to get into college. You have bullying at school, social media, the peer pressure, just all these things coming at them all the time. They are living under chronic stress and they don't have the tools to recover. They don't know how to send that signal of safety to their survival brain that says, Hey, I don't need you to be activated right now. You can stand down. And so I think as parents, you have to recognize your kids can only do so much. If they're staying up and they're young and they're staying up for crazy hours at night doing homework because they had sports practice, which is impacting their sleep, they're going to be struggling with sleep deprivation that might or might relate to like the presentation of anxiety or the presentation of depression. And I think parents just have to really prioritize their kids' schedule. You don't have to be the Pinterest mom. You don't have to have them involved in everything. Make sure sleep is a priority. Have them go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. Are they eating gut healthy food or are they eating 
making lucky charms for breakfast, things like that. Let's break that down for a second. First of all, were you raised with this huge expectation of what are you going to do with your life and all of these things? Mm -mm. No, I didn't feel that I had that pressure on me. I grew up in the country, so I kind of just feel like I roamed, like I played all the time, but I never had this pressure of you have to get A's because you have to go to college and you have to get a good job. I wonder where this changed because I feel like it's that they can never unplug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because back in the day, I got to come home and that stuff was outside my house. What's happening now is these kids never have the opportunity to get away from it because it comes home with them now. Like it's now in the homes and they're on their phones late at night. And so I definitely think that the phone has amplified the situation. Well, they talk to their teachers on the phone. It's this weird thing that sort of everything is happening on the phone. When you deal with young people, have you heard of any parents that have sort of some system, something figured out about this? Because I'm telling you, this is the thing that we all wrestle with, Mm -hmm. with our children, which is like, please put your phone down. You can feel it. Even if it's like a reward system at this point, you know, you'd love to say, well, we just do it from there to there, but everything is still kind of about a threat of something or a reward of something. Have you heard of something where someone was really kind of getting this part right? I haven't because I haven't worked a ton with kiddos, like with their actual parents in the community. But even just recently, I had a kiddo that was um, in the inpatient psych hospital. And one of the things was helping her establish boundaries with herself on when she got out. And it was such a fight. Like, I don't even think we made progress on it because kids cell phones are like their third limb. Like they just can't not have their phone. I have seen in my older girls that young people sometimes around 17 or 18, they seem to have a a little bit more of a pull away from Mm -hmm. the phone. I think they notice a lot of them. I know some people that are in real big tech businesses and jobs, and they are very intense about governing how their kids use it because they know more. Yeah, I'm always fascinated about who's getting it right. Within the practice of communicating about things presenting as anxiety or depression, but maybe not being those things. Is there ever the opportunity to have that real talk with young people? Like you can't always get everything curated how you want. Sometimes you have to actually speak live and in person. You can't text it. You can't. Is that incorporated in some of these practices? Honestly, because my work is more like I'm doing like acute psychosis when they're in crisis, but I have noticed with them that we have like an instant gratification. Like we're just, we are so used to things on demand and we're so, everybody gets first place. You know, there is no like first place winner anymore. We all get it. And so kids don't know how to lose. Kids don't know how to self-regulate when they're told no. And I think a lot of it comes down to I don't even know how to explain kids. Cause like I said, I'm working with kids and even I'm just like, I don't even, you guys are like little aliens. I don't even know how to communicate with you. (laughs) So I just think that they are so used to just everything immediately. Like they didn't have to like the dial up when we had old school internet, like they just got like Wi-Fi immediately. And so there's no patience anymore. And so for them, when they get to that point where they feel like they have no control or they're powerless in a situation, that's activating their stress response for them. And that's creating all that anxiety that's coming. That's doing the whole sympathetic nervous system when they're not in danger, they're not in threat just because somebody told you no. So you see, I'm not the only one who sees this or feels this way, right? No, you're not. Let's move then into in some of the work that you're doing that really interests you. I'm also well aware that we especially are in an exaggerated time between COVID, mm-hmm. politics, war. So I couldn't imagine being 13 to 24 or five years old right now. I really feel a lot of compassion. I think something else is going to have to happen. I don't think everyone can walk around being able to get their feelings hurt or everything sets them off. I definitely think that people need to learn how to self-regulate. Most people don't know how to self-soothe. I didn't know how to self-soothe until I went to grad school. I would be triggered by something and my fight flight would kick in and I would respond. I would throw something, I'd scream, I would get in somebody's face. Like I just wasn't afraid. And I didn't know how to practice that pause. I didn't know how to step back, take a breath, recognize what's happening, calm myself. And I feel the kids don't know that. And nowadays our brains are hardwired for like saber tooth tigers. That's the threat. It's a quick, there's a tiger coming after you, you activate, and then you're able to cool down after kids. 
are activated all the time. Bullying is the new saber tooth tiger. Not having a friend like you on Instagram is the new saber tooth tiger. And they don't know how to self-regulate when the sympathetic nervous is kicked in. And so I honestly think until we can teach kiddos, hey, like DBT skills, how can you practice mindfulness when you're in distress? How can you have distress tolerance when you're in distress? Without those skills, it's just going to escalate and get worse. And then it's going to snowball into a bigger problem down the future when they're adults. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got, I did some research and what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law and Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential and they conducted a university led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women, 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your, on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're a certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finish touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L, dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. What prompted you to say, okay, I'm going to take a look at this and get some new tools for your personal experience? I think for me is I realized this is not healthy for me. Me getting so escalated so fast was not healthy. And then I started to learn about like attachment and things like that and my own mental health struggles and burnout. And I learned DBT skills and I'm like, oh man, like this is something like I can really learn to cool myself off because I was, I would get really ballsy where I wouldn't be afraid to get in someone's face and be like, you're not going to talk to me like that. Or if I was mad, I didn't want to hit somebody or hurt somebody. So I'd throw something because I just had to get that energy out of me. And so I just realized like, this is going to hurt my relationship if I don't regulate this. And that's the other thing is, is I feel like people think the younger generations thinks that's normal. They think that it's normal to have that behavior when reality it's not. You have become dysregulated. Why do you think you got to that place? Was it too much stress from work? Was it unresolved things? You said you, you know, you have a blended family. Was there some stuff you needed to get off your chest? How did you get to the root of what was triggering you? One of the things, because I started to do trauma work, learning about trauma work, and I started to learn, obviously, about trigger triggers and how your amygdala will activate to anything that it perceives as dangerous or resembles a past trauma. And I had something happen to me my senior year of high school, and I found that I was only getting like that if a male was getting loud, was posturing, and I felt not threatened, but maybe trapped. Like I couldn't escape the situation. And so I was finding that I was triggered in those moments. And that's when I would have that fight, flight, freeze response. And in the moment I was trying to fight because my amygdala perceived I was in danger. But the reality was your amygdala thinks I'm that senior still in that situation. And I'm not, I was an adult in a safe environment. You know, I, it was just activating. So really learning that helped me. 
I took a ton of courses. Now we say I have a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in clinical counseling, and a doctorate in self-education. Like I just dove into the work and I learned about my own behaviors from studying it and taking courses. And I was able in those moments, and it was never anything bad. It would even just be an argument with my husband, but because he has a louder voice, that triggered me to when I was in high school. And so obviously you had to be mindful. So I'd have to be present with what's going on. So I was like, okay, you know, we're having a disagreement, whatever. And then as it would escalate, I would just really get into my body. Like you need to be able to send that signal of safety to your amygdala so that you can say, hey. I am okay. I am in an environment where I'm safe. I'm grounded in my body. And you just kind of have to breathe your way through it, fill your way through it. I couldn't talk myself out of it. I had to fill it. And I think that's where people go wrong is you're having an argument with your husband. It's not a big deal. Don't freak out. But the reality is, is once you're activated, once your amygdala has ignited the fight, flight, freeze, it shuts off all thinking. It shuts down the thinking brain. And you can only close that loop if you feel your way through it. You have to be in your body and you have to send a signal of safety. So it just took tons and tons of practice, but I finally was able to just like ride through the wave. Like if we got in an argument, I would just ride through the weight of emotions, chill in my body and know that it would end. Going back with just DBT really fast. DBT is basically you're trying to get people to to operate from wise mind as opposed to just logical or just emotional. You want to like marry the two. And so it's really about distress tolerance, mindfulness, interpersonal relationships, and emotional intelligence. And they're all tons of different skills that you can learn about, but it's helping people respond in those moments from a wise mind. And so I'm not an expert at all in like inner child work or inner bonding like that, but I'm slowly starting to dive into it because it kind of goes to what you're saying of, we need to learn how to respond where we can say, okay, maybe we need to take an impasse on this, or this is the goal we're trying to get to. What do we need to get to it instead of it being an argument? Because with inner bonding, they say that when you respond angrily or you project out mean that your wounded child, the wounded piece of yourself is the one responding. And I'm throwing a million things out there, but you really have to get to that core of like, when you respond poorly to somebody and there is just no logical talking about this, like we're not going there. What is going on with the wounded part of yourself that you are not receptive to hearing what the other person has to say? In the work you're doing with the adults, maybe you could just share if someone comes in and sees you, how do you get them to kind of look at the whole system? So right now, because my day job is working with kiddos and inpatient, and I used to work with adults in the uh, male prison, but I'm also doing anxiety coaching. So I'm working with anxious people in the community. And I always want to know the whole picture. I want to know diet, lifestyle, trauma, what is going on, what's your stress look like. And some people's anxiety can be ignited by their thoughts because essentially your amygdala watches your thoughts like a scary movie. And if your thoughts are scary, it's going to activate your anxiety. And so if, if I feel that someone's struggling with like worrisome thoughts, catastrophic thinking, things like that, we will do an approach that focuses on thoughts. But my biggest thing is body. I want people to focus on the sensations of anxiety. What's going on? Because like I said earlier, when you're anxious, your amygdala takes your, essentially takes the phone off the hook. Like your thoughts can't call in and say, dude, calm down, stop activating. And so our number one goal when you're anxious is we have to get you into your body so you can send a signal of safety to your amygdala that can stand down. And so one easy thing that I would tell people is if you're feeling anxious, have like a solo dance party, like put on music and dance. Or if you're at a party and you can't really do anything, go in the bathroom and jog in place for a little bit. Just get your heart rate up because your amygdala will think you're escaping danger and it'll close that loop for you. When you say people who like have catastrophic thoughts, what does that look like? The world is ending. If they don't text you back, oh, he hates me. They don't like me. It's just like these massive thoughts that are blown out of proportion that have nothing to do with what's going on. Like the worst case scenario, or if you get a letter in the mail from a college university and you instantly tell yourself like, oh, I didn't get accepted. They're not rational, logical thoughts that you're having. Yeah. A lot of anticipatory going on. So what for you is the most exciting part of the work right now that you see that maybe across the board, the most people are navigating 
I'm liking that I'm seeing more wellness. I'm seeing a lot more people do holistic approaches to their treatment because in the past, like holistic used to be like woo woo, like it was just some weird mystical thing. And I do think we still have so far to come because I think the biochemical med management is the current narrative. We have the highest disability rates with mental health right now, which tells you something. But I do like that more psychiatrists that are trained to prescribe meds are learning, okay, maybe this isn't working and let's have a different approach to it. So they're focusing on nutrition. And to me, that's exciting because it's showing like, hey, like what we're doing is not working. Let's focus on the whole you as opposed to just treating your symptom. Yeah. Well, because it's easier to take a pill. It's easier just to take something because it, it is hard work. You have to retrain your brain. You have to rewire it essentially for it to help you deescalate where you could pop a Xanax and you're like marrying on your way, like instantly, like it's just where we're at. Now you worked with male prisoners. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? It was so crazy. Cause nobody thought I was going to survive it. They're like, you are way too nice. You're too sensitive. And so mm-hmm. I went into a maximum security prison. I was in the same prison that death row is in, but I was working in an acute mental health unit. So I was with individuals who were deemed dangerously mentally ill or not competent to stand trial. And they were in prison in the acute unit. And so I worked with murderers and I worked with sex offenders and I worked with people who were in there for drug possession. And it changed everything for me because I saw people so heavily medicated for mental health. I saw like a B team SWAT team go in, hold people down, inject them with meds. And I opened my eyes like, what we're doing is not working. Like This is not helping these people. And then I also got the insight of why is our incarceration rate so high and why are they all struggling with mental health symptoms? Like, where are we going wrong that the prisons are the modern day asylums? And I've learned through that work that you have the ACE scores, you have trauma, adversity, neglect, abandonment, parents who use substances while their babies were in utero. I've had multiple people tell me, I used heroin with my mom when I was eight years old because it was the only way I could get her to pay attention to me. And that sets him on this trajectory of life. And then he ends up incarcerated. And it's like, okay, pump the brakes. What we are doing is not working. Obviously, there are people that go to prison and they want the help and they really do the work and they do get better. But I have found that the majority of them, they're so set in their ways that they don't even want to do the work. They don't care. But one of the things when I really did make progress, I found was psychoeducation, was just saying, hey, you struggling with anxiety, you struggling with depression, it's not a mental illness. Let's unpack your story. And I would sit with them and I'd listen to them. And there was so much trauma and so much neglect. And I would help them make the connection of, okay, you were a little kid and you were going through all of these things and you had to do what you had to do in that moment to cope with it. You got older, those coping skills no longer served you and helping them realize that their symptoms that they're presenting with now that they're struggling with now has everything to do with the mind-body dysregulation from events that happened in their childhood that they've never processed. And so that's really been the biggest thing for me. But what is so crazy is I left the prisons because I always asked them, I said, what did you guys need? that you didn't get that you think would have been helpful. And they always said, I wish somebody would have intervened when I was a kid. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to go work with kids in an inpatient psych hospital. And it is such a trip because I am seeing the adult versions in a little body. All these kids are those adults that I worked with. And it is so heartbreaking because I'm like, man, this is really where it started. Tell me, do you ever get kids where you can see that they might be able to make it? So where I'm at right now, so these are kiddos who have been in the hospitals for mental health reasons, and they're not getting better. They're not stable. And so then we become a 30-day, essentially a hold for them. They're typically with us for 30 days. And our job is let's get these kiddos stable. And the problem with that is based on our current mental health model is stability looks like med management. And so it's very much a medication approach. And that's where I struggle because these kids have been raped. They've been neglected. They're like a nine-year-old getting raped multiple times. Parents walking away saying, I don't want, I don't want them anymore. You have a lot of kids whose parents use meth and heroin when they're pregnant. 
and we're not addressing the substance use. We're not getting to do a deep dive trauma like treatment with them, which isn't something you can do in 30 days. It takes a long time to unpack that. And so with these kids, sadly, I don't see that. I don't feel that I am able to make that progress with them. And that's where I'm really struggling with our current mental health model is it's like when this kid acts up and you give them a medication, that doesn't teach them anything. That didn't give them any insight as to why they responded the way they responded. All you did was teach them when I am in pain, take a medication and the pain will go away. Anna Lemke just wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. And I interviewed her for the Courageous Leader podcast. And it's an amazing book. I think everybody should read it because she says that we are using any means possible to avoid pain. And we're using medication and substances essentially as a form or using it because we're lacking in self-care. So if, if that's something you're interested in, I would totally recommend reading that book. Yeah. I think when it comes to kids is really just knowing your kid. Like you can tell if your kid's like, fine, I don't need to talk. And you're like, okay, I'm good leaving. But I think when you have that connection with your kid, you can tell when they're in emotional distress and they might need a minute to calm down. They might be activated. And in that moment, they can't logically have a conversation with you. So giving them that space, obviously, if they're going to harm themselves, you don't want to walk away, but just step away, come back later. So that's how I would approach that. But I wish there was like a one size fits all model with where people can start. But I think if you can do anything for your mental health, it's sleep. Like we are such a sleep deprived nation you know, go to bed, practice sleep hygiene, go to bed and wake up at the same time every night, stop falling asleep with your phone next to you, turn off the TV, kick the dogs out of your bedroom, stop drinking before you go to bed, because that's a myth that everyone thinks alcohol helps you sleep, but it actually results in poor sleep. So if I can stress anything, it's focus on sleep. The next thing I'd say, move your body. I'm not saying you have to go to the gym for an hour, but I'm saying go for a walk, go out in nature and breathe fresh air, ground yourself and the nature itself will help re-regulate your nervous system. How much caffeine are you drinking? Are you consuming a lot of alcohol? When it comes to your diet, what are you eating? Because nothing drives me more insane when someone's taking a mental health medication but they're eating processed food and fast food all day long. That's pouring fuel on your fire, but you're masking that fire with a med. So it's like, what are you consuming every day? Breathe. Really? Are you breathing from your belly or your chest? Because your chest, that's going to activate your sympathetic nervous system. I'm trying to think trauma work. I think so many people are like, oh, I never experienced trauma, but trauma and stress are on a spectrum. So they're no different than stress. But what makes it trauma is when a person is experiencing chronic stress and they feel powerless, helpless, or lacking control. That is what defines trauma. And so I think everybody who's struggling with mental health could probably remember a time where like, oh, I was in a stressful situation where I felt powerless or I felt helpless or lacking control. So go do that trauma work, fix it, heal it, get to the root of it. So those are kind of my biggest things that I'm like, it'll kind of go from top to your toes and help you regulate a little bit. What is it for you in your own practice that you're like, huh? Oh yeah, there it is. Got to keep working on that. What shows up for you? That's a tough one. I've been like working on myself for a long time, like tough work, but when it comes to just treating my own mental health, I think it comes down to just my diet. Like I'm an emotional eater. I've learned that that is an addiction for me. Like some people do heroin, I eat cookies. For me, that's my struggle. And so there's moments where I catch myself craving and wanting to binge eat something and I have to check in with myself and be like, okay, I am in emotional distress right now. Am I sleep deprived? Am I tired? Do I need to go take a nap? What is going on that I'm feeling these emotions? Because at the end of the day, it's not the cookie. I don't want the dang cookie. Something internally is off with me. So there's still moments where I will let myself go on autopilot and I'll go reach for that cookie. And I have to like remind myself like, okay, Tara, like there's something going on. Check in with yourself, ride that wave of emotion and you'll get through it. So that's probably like one of my biggest ones that I'm still struggling with. There's a couple of things I do. One of them is I did some work um, with Dr. Russell Kennedy and he talks about like your inner child and we established that mine's in my chest. So when I hear that voice, I always liken it to my inner child, my insecurities, they're coming up, they're chattering at me. And so I'll like rub my chest and basically just send myself some self-compassion. And then the other thing I do is, and everyone is, they either like affirmations or they don't, but I will always just tell myself, like, I am the most confident person. And I just have to keep telling myself that because 
a lot of my inner chatter is saying you're not good enough. You don't know enough. Oh, look, that that doctor, that psychologist knows more than you. And so mine is more about my confidence level. So I just have to remind myself like, okay, you are confident, ground yourself in your body. And then whatever it is that it's saying to me, it's just like, okay, look for the evidence that disproves it. Where in your life is there evidence that disproves what you're saying? And you usually find that there's no evidence to support what you're telling yourself. I'm an everyday girl. I know how to help people, but I throw myself under the bus all the time when I'm struggling. Like I just throw it out there. And I used to have these big psychiatrists that have been on like the Goop podcast or worked with Dr. Amen. And I would ask them, I said, do you guys think I should go and get my doctorate for people to take me seriously? And the majority of them told me, no, they're like, all you're going to get is the diploma that says you're now a doctor. But they're like, the people that I have asked have told me that going through the process of getting a doctorate made them almost too educational. It made them where they spoke as a professional, where they lost that piece of humanity, where I can be like, dude, I'm struggling today, you guys, like, and here's where it at, where a psychiatrist may not come out and say that. Is there any other kind of habit or invitation you would offer to people just to try it out? I would say that a lot of people are so disconnected from themselves that they don't even know what's missing. I would invite you just to get to know yourself again, sit in silence. Like when's the last time somebody sat in their living room, no sound on, devices turned off and just tuned in. Like, what do I feel? What am I thinking? What am I missing? What do I need? And lean into that. And I mean, like I said, treating mental health, there's a million things you can do, like the sleep exercise diet. Those are some things, but I think we are a society that is so lonely. Like we crave connection. We're designed for connection. And with COVID that definitely hasn't helped anything. Go talk to somebody. If there's somebody in your COVID bubble that you can hug, go give them a bear hug. Like just really feel that connection with people. Call a friend. You know, a lot of us get this self dialogue in our head that we're a burden or nobody likes us or things like that. Like most of the insecurities you have, that other person is probably having too. So ignore it and lean into it. I would just invite people to get back into their life because if there's one thing the prison taught me is there are so many people incarcerated that are spending their life locked behind a barbed wire fence. But at the end of the day, I realized there's more people outside of that fence who are not living their life. They are eternally imprisoned. And I would just invite you to look up from your device, wake up, and go live your life because this is not dress rehearsal. You, This is the main event. You don't get a redo on it. So, so when it comes to my relationship, no, I always tell people I am not a marriage counselor. Like I will never pretend to know what I'm talking about with marriage and stuff. But I have found with my marriage and with coworkers is I statements. The best thing you can do is an I statement. I feel blank because, because when you say that, you're owning your feelings and you're not blaming them. So like, I feel mad because the dishes weren't put away or I feel like you don't care about my feelings, things like that. Using I statements takes ownership of your feelings and doesn't project it onto that person. But I think honestly, the thing that's helped me the most is learning that people's responses to me have nothing to do with me, but rather everything to do with their wounded self. Because when we get activated or we feel like something is being blamed on us or whatever, we pull up our defense mechanisms and we project that back. They're like, nope, you are not going to accuse me of doing this. Like, this is all your fault. And we kitchen sink them. We pull in things that our husband did to us 10 years ago because we just need like all the ammo to throw at them. Basically going in to have that conversation, just going in with the intention of like, listen, this isn't an attack. Like, Instead of listening to respond, listen to listen. Like some things people can do too is if it's your partner or even your kids, if you're struggling and you feel they're not listening, because typically we're not, we're, we're thinking, oh, how can I get them back better is say it back to them. Be like, okay, what did I say? And have them reiterate it back and go back and forth so that you know that you're hearing it. Because I think all the time we just want to protect ourselves and defend ourselves for whatever reason. And we're not even hearing the person. We're just thinking of how we can make, like we can blast them out of the water, basically. What about as a step parent, any tricks that you came into it with? And now that you're, you know, a few years in, 
that uh, you did it one way, but now you do it another. And obviously the kids are getting older, so it's different dynamics, but how does that work? I think the biggest thing for me is, is I never tried to replace their mother. I never tried to make it our family and she wasn't part of it. But I think the biggest for me is I grew up in a blended family and all I've ever wanted my whole entire life was a nuclear family. And I don't have kids of my own yet. And so I think I tried to create this family. Like when we were in a home, we were this family, but we have a mom. It's not a good relationship. And so I would struggle because there would be waves on the outside that were causing disturbances within my little family I was trying to create. And so for me, it's, I had to step back and recognize, okay, like there's all these families, like the kids have their family with their mom. I have my little family here. My husband and his kids have like a little thing and me and the kids have a little thing. And so instead of trying to create this one family, I had to realize we all have our unique relationships. And once I really grasped that, life got a million times easier. Being a stepmother is probably one of the hardest roles I've ever played in my life. But even just being in a blended family, because I know for me, one of my biggest insecurities is do they think their mom is cooler? Do they have more fun at their mom's house? Like, is life better over there? Like, are we not cool? Do they not want to be here? And it's like this vicious cycle. And it's like, okay, pump the brakes. Yeah. We are our own unique coolness. The kids may not think we're cool now, but maybe one day they will and vice versa. So it's definitely I, not like the movies. If you could give one last invitation. Well, first of all, does anything keep you up at night? Actually, yeah. Um, one of the biggest things I've noticed, and it's really sad, is I've been waking up in the middle of the night thinking about the patients I'm working with. I'm really struggling because I don't like our current mental health model. And I'm not just saying that because I just woke up the other night at 2 a.m. thinking, man, we are treating a behavior with a med and it is not helping her because I genuinely want to help these kids because I don't want them to be incarcerated. I don't want them to go try to kill themselves. And so I think I stay awake at night just thinking like I have this, it's not, I wouldn't even say it's a hero's complex. I just genuinely want to help these people because these kids become our adults and man, right now they're all struggling. And so okay. I have been waking up. Honestly, I think it's just being a voice because I get so much hate and so much pushback when I talk about medication because it's easier to believe something's wrong with us than something's either happened to us or we're playing a part in this. And people hold the belief so tightly that their symptoms are a result of a chemical imbalance. And so I honestly think the best thing you can do is just self-educate yourself, read books. There are so many amazing resources out there. There's a website called Madden America. It is hands down one of the best websites that is just creating a conversation about how we can approach mental health, but also saying this system we have is it's killing people. It's making people sick. And so reading books, self-educating, being a voice in informing yourself is probably the best thing you can do. Because at the end of the day, the way I view it, or the only way we're going to have massive change is if we take on big pharma. And if you look at like the opioid crisis we're currently in, like you see how well that works because- yeah. There's so much money behind it and like just a little like tangent, but in America, they play commercials for mental health medications where they don't do that in other countries. So we have like, it's coming into our homes. So I think just informing yourself is honestly the best thing you can do. And it's going to feel really uncomfortable at first because you're challenging the belief system that you have, the narrative that you have. And that's why I think I get so mad or so defensive is is people come at me and they're like, you're a terrible therapist for saying this, or you're perpetuating the stigma. But I look at it as like, you guys, I'm telling you that you have agency over your life. You're not broken. You're not, you don't have to live like this. I'm trying to give you your power back so that you can heal. And I do want to do a disclaimer that I am not anti-mental health medication. I'm anti-overprescribing of mental health medications. And I believe there's a time and a place. And I think only you will know when that time and place is necessary. But there is no research to support the long-term use of mental health medications. All the studies are done on short-term usage. But what's happening is these doctors are prescribing them for long-term. They're having side effects from that. And then they're being prescribed meds for the side effects. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I too, I used to be prescribed Lexapro. I was prescribed Wellbutrin. I used to take Xanax. I got to the point where I was kind of abusing Xanax. And that's what drives so much of this passion is, is like, 
I am not a shitty therapist for caring. Like I care more about you than you probably care about yourself because I'm willing to put myself on the chopping block to advocate for you. Can you share, just remind people all the places, uh, courageously, you, do you release every week? Mm-hmm. What day of the week do you release? On Tuesdays. So I have the Courageously You podcast on Tuesdays. And that is more a platform where I invite people that inspire me, that are my mentors, that I feel are making a positive impact in the mental health space. So I invite them on to talk. I recently started this thing called Closet Conversations. It's still through the podcast, but... Like I get on these tangents where I get to talking and I'm feeling things. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to create closet conversations because I record in my closet. So I get on my soapbox for a minute, but they're usually short and then I eventually get off. (laughs) If you don't have conviction, you won't be able to put the stone up the hill. So, you know, and by the way, you have a lot of incredible talent on your podcast. Uh, So I encourage people to go back and even see the older episodes. You have a lot of really talented people. So besides Courageously You, will you direct them to any other place to find you? So I'm the most active on Instagram. You can just find me at courageously.you. And then I do anxiety coaching. I work full time, but I'm doing anxiety coaching on the side. And those are pretty much the three ways to to get in touch with me. Right. And you do have a four-week course. So I want to people are looking for something like that. I really appreciate your time. And I really deeply appreciate part of your mission because we need a lot of people in agreement about this so that we can take care of ourselves and and really heal, not mask it. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate you giving me the platform to share it. Of course. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.